Welcome to episode six of the Teaching While Learning podcast. Now that you've made your way here, I hope you're ready to dive deeper into the ESL industry and get a glance of what it has to offer. The TWL podcast is dedicated to placing you in the shoes of current and former ESL teachers by bringing you their stories, experiences, and opinions. I'm your host, Tim Hillebrand. On today's episode, the founder of All Hands Taiwan, Join me for a chat to discuss complacency in the ESL industry and the effect it has on one's well-being. One of the reasons my guests founded All Hands was to combat this trap by hosting networking events to support expats that want to transition out of the ESL industry and into another career. After spending three years teaching ESL, he decided to move into marketing while simultaneously building All Hands Taiwan into what it is today. Let's jump into my chat with John Mern. All right, John. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Not at all. Not at all. I always appreciate being invited to talk about things as if I know something. I'm sure you do. You're always speaking to somebody about something on a stage somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I brought you on today because I wanted to get your perspective on the ESL industry and transitioning from it. But you're able, you're able to really understand how teachers feel after teaching so long in the industry. Mm-hmm. Could you give me, or give us rather, a brief overview of your time in the industry, ESL industry, and then what you expected to get from it? Sure. I first encountered uh, teaching English uh, in the fall of 2007. I went traveling the previous summer with the uh, intent to try living abroad. I had done what research I could at that time. Uh, looking into a variety of countries in Asia, uh, Thailand, Korea, Japan, Taiwan. And um, I just kind of found through a process of actually emailing the schools and, and also learning things like, for example, in Japan, especially at the time, like the JET program dominated everything. And there were things about that program that were red flags for me, like they want you to live in dorms and stuff. And uh and, and essentially what happened is I got the most friendly and positive responses from Taiwan. And so I had never been to any of those countries. And so my position on it was kind of like, okay, let's give it a try. Um, so I had been traveling in the summer. I landed in Taiwan in August of that year. I got off the plane one night, went to a hostel, woke up the next day, got dressed for an interview and proceeded to interview for like seven jobs in five days. And I got offered all of them. 12 years ago, there were not many teachers, in Ta- not as many teachers in Taiwan. And I was not in Taipei. I was in Shinzu, which is about an hour uh, to the Southwest. It's kind of, uh, for those who don't know, it's kind of, it's considered kind of the tech hub of Taiwan. Um, and my thinking in that respect was that I didn't want to live in the capital city first. I wanted to kind of be able to experience the country. And um, I ended up taking a job at an international high school um, and also an evening job teaching adults at a language center. Um, so my day job at the high school involved teaching a variety of subjects in English. And then I did have a couple students who I focused on with ESL specifically. Um, and then in the evenings, I was teaching from a very clear cut regimented program uh, at, a, at a chain school. So I was teaching professional English with these kind of set units. And uh, then eventually I did have my own private tutor students, both children and adults. 
um, of all different kinds of levels. And um, after I lived in Taiwan working that way for two years, I went traveling again and I spent a year in Thailand where my primary job was uh, doing marketing at a university, but I did also teach part-time uh, ESL at a private school in Bangkok. And so that was just a straight ESL job. And I was in like a big classroom with about 30 kids. And uh, those were very young kids. I don't remember exactly what grade, but they must have been between six and 10 years old. So that um, those three years uh, encompass my actual ESL work history. You've been around the block. <laughs> I've tried a few things out. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's back up for a moment. Um, what was your overall feeling on the ESL industry before you started teaching and before you started applying for jobs? Well, I have an English degree and I have a journalism degree. So I was, you know, honestly, working with language is something that uh, interests me. Although out of high school, I, uh, I felt resistant to pursuing, you know, becoming a high school teacher, like an English or a literature teacher. And I kind of wanted to become a professor. And then I kind of learned that that's a really saturated place to be in America. And uh, then I ended up adding a journalism degree and that kind of thing. So, you know, working with languages of interest to me, I didn't really know if I wanted to teach per se. Um, I, you know, in high school and college, I had done a lot of coaching. I've done little league coaching. I've taught swim lessons and stuff like that. So I'm comfortable in that uh, role. And coming to Asia, I didn't have a strong perception before I did it, I don't think. You know, as I was researching that move is probably the time that I learned 90% of whatever I, whatever ideas I had about it. You know, and I mentioned JET earlier, you know, some of the programs like that seemed really mature already. And then I was also uncovering, you know, individual schools and reaching out to them. And they clearly were just winging it, you know, with the few people they had on staff. So I didn't, I wouldn't say that I had any positive or negative impressions. And I wouldn't say that I knew what to expect. I think I knew the basic idea of it, of, of the fact that like often people who are traveling will try this or that this is a, a thing that some people think is a novel way to live abroad. And I didn't know if it would be easy or difficult. And I didn't really know if it'd be easy or difficult to find a job when I set out in that, you know, in that endeavor. Well, I guess that really adds to the to the adventure then. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I was taking the leap, man. Good. Yeah, that's what a lot of people do when they're trying to go abroad and teach English. I think that has a, a big pull on people. So, definitely. Um, what did you expect to get from your experience abroad? Were there things that you wanted to learn? Um, did you want to change personally? Did you want to grow professionally? Mm. What were your desires? Um, I'm from a very small town in Wisconsin. I lived in New York after university, working in book publishing. And, and the little bit of traveling I did before I graduated and then spending a year in New York really kind of whetted my appetite to live in places that I deemed interesting. And I also realized that I learned so much living in New York, just the lifestyle and learned about myself. And so, you know, when I, when I had this idea to go traveling, one of the other things I thought about is I didn't really just want to save this money and then blow it all in like four months of travel and come home and be like, I traveled, you know, I, I, I felt like I wanted to try living abroad. I felt like it might be for me. And so that's kind of why I lined it up that way. 
before you said you had kind of you dipped your feet into many areas of the ESL industry. So you did tutoring. You worked at an international school. Um, you mm-hmm. worked at a, a university um, and also mm-hmm. a language schools here in Taiwan. Did your view on the industry change a lot after you began working? And if so, how? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think there's what, uh, at least in Taiwan and Thailand, the only places I've seen it firsthand, there definitely certain st- seems seems to be uh, like kind of, I don't know, echelons of teachers, let's say. You know, in Taiwan, you have kindergarten or bushiban teachers, many of whom are working illegally, many of whom don't have a degree that's related to a language, many of whom don't speak English as a first language. You know, they have certain there seems to be like pluses and minuses to those jobs, right? The schedules could be dynamic and flexible. Sometimes the pay seems really good. Uh, There's also a pay grade ceiling. Uh, And, you know, working at the international schools is extremely well paid by comparison and there's benefits and holidays. Uh, Sometimes those jobs can be stressful. There's a lot of pressure on the parents and the kids or from the parents. Working with adults, I found to be pretty relaxed. Uh, I didn't necessarily love or hate the very structured system I worked in, in that chain school. And, you know, you learn different things about where, like what you get paid in different places and, and how much admin is worth it, depending on what you like to do. You know, for example, Thailand pays much worse than Taiwan. Living and working in ESL in Taiwan is very comfortable. And that's why a lot of people do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's one of the reasons that I that I taught here for so long. Yeah, because it's just, um, yeah, you can make very good money in doing, you know, not having to to work forty hours a week. So I think that's quite understandable mm-hmm. from from a teacher's position. All right. Um, after you got settled in, um, you started teaching. You got more confident. Um, was did you discover that this is something that you wanted to do um, long term, or did you know quite early on that this was just short term and you were going to move on at some point? Yeah, I would say that I learned that it was going to be a temporary thing for me. I don't mind teaching. I would, I think I would still enjoy becoming a professor, you know, I would, or even maybe someday, I don't know, as a part-time retiree teach like high school literature or something like that, because I feel passionate about those subjects and, you know, teaching, or as you mentioned earlier in the opening, you know, speaking in public are things that come somewhat naturally to me and I'm comfortable with that. But for me, yeah, I mean, there's things you learn quickly. For me, I learned I am not cut out to work with like six to 12 year olds all day. I need to work with, you know, middle school, high school, university or adult type students. That's the, for me, that's where the work was fulfilling and not as stressful or distracting. You know, we could work on the thing we were studying. We can have real discussions. Whereas I'm not much of a babysitter, not, not to reduce, not to reduce the profession to that, but you know, there's a lot of refereeing in a classroom full of kids. And I found that that's not a strength for me, you know, and uh, it's not something that I could I would want to sustain as part of my career. And um, so, you know, uh, I would say after the first year or so, definitely I started thinking both ahead and laterally about like, okay, you know, am I, I also, that's closely tied to the idea of living abroad. So I was thinking, am I going to move home anytime soon? If not, am I going to go traveling again? Am I going to come back to these jobs? You know, how long can I teach before I want to do something else? So I think uh, for me, variety was good. Having a day job and a night job, I'm always borderline workaholic and 
you know, you learn a lot. And also, you know, I spent up a lot of my money in that first year before I came here by traveling. So I was also trying to make sure that I could financially do what I wanted to do if I needed to move home or, or move somewhere else, you know, subsequently. And I can, I can definitely concur that just in the short period that I've known you, you're definitely a workaholic. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't take it. Don't take enough holidays. Probably. That's all right. You get a lot of stuff done and we'll get into um, exactly what you're doing with all hands in a, in a, in a little bit. Great. At what point did you start feeling comfortable teaching? Um, you said before that you knew younger kids were not your thing um, and you'd rather teach the older kids and adults. Um, was there ever a point that you felt confident in what you were doing in the classroom? Yeah, it didn't take long for me. I think a month or so. You understand, it's as, as with any job, you have to feel out the office politics, right? You have to understand how much your boss is going to be watching you or not, how many rules there are or not. And then, you know, more central to the work you're doing, you have to also start to calibrate what is your task? How, how many students are there? How capable are they, you know, com- given the materials you're expected to teach them? Um, so I don't think it took me long. You know, again, again, you mentioned a couple times and I've said it, you know, I'm comfortable on stage. I'm comfortable speaking with people. So I didn't, I was lucky not to work in any really like high stress environments. So, you know, given, given kind of the, the freedom to, to go at it and teach, it didn't take me long to get comfortable with it. Good. So then that that gave you a lot of extra time to, you know, kind of hone your, your skill set in the classroom. What did you do to continually learn and improve yourself uh, while you were teaching? That's a great question. Um, I was fortunate to teach, especially at the international school, a lot of things around ESL, right? I was able to teach literature. I did the journalism club and some different things that are still, you know, language relevant. And so there were definitely times I used my class prep for those things to kind of cross over and look at where I was teaching ESL and and how I could do that. So I would say that I don't respond. One of the things about ESL teaching that I don't respond well is to a really, a very rigid, you know, curriculum. I think having guides and having lesson plans and topics are great. Having word lists are great, but, um, teachers and, and parents when there's parents involved and students, you know, there's different expectations and, and there's different ways to go about things. So, you know, for me, when I could, I think obviously when you're able to bring things in, whether they're interesting or fun, it helps create a learning environment where students can respond. And that's true for adults as well as kids, you know, with adults, I made as much headway talking about current events much of the time as I did, you know, drilling whatever uh, unit we were working on. And the same could be said for kids, right? When I could take, uh, you know, when I could take us away from grinding through a workbook and turn something into a fun 15-minute word game that kept them engaged, you know, uh, for me, that the process of going through the preparation and the execution of it becomes much more, it became much more fulfilling for me. I think, I'm sure there's people who love to show up to work have a book that tells them exactly what to do. They don't really need to check in. They do it. They take their paycheck and go home. I can't, that wasn't really my thing. Let's kind of move into the, the core of, of this, this conversation. Um, a lot of people are listening because they're very curious about some of the pitfalls um, you can fall into if you were to get involved in this, in this industry. A lot of people 
get very complacent after they spend a lot of time in the ESL industry. Did you find that that was the case for you as well? I do agree with you that it's easy to get comfortable, especially in Taiwan more so than I would have said in Thailand because of the salary. For myself, I... That's an interesting question. I would say I didn't necessarily become complacent because I fell into the work routine, but there was a time in Taiwan, for example, it must have taken about five or six months, but eventually my finances kind of got caught up and it got to the point where a paycheck came in and I looked at my bank account and I still had quite a lot of money from the previous paycheck and I started to realize like, oh, okay, this is, there's a new kind of comfort, comfort zone there. Right. And so that definitely changed my perspective. That was eye opening on kind of being like, wow, okay, I really can save money if I want to travel or if I just want to save or if I want to move home or I thought about grad school at one point. And um, so that definitely altered my perception. But then, you know, when I lived in Bangkok, the pay was maybe about half as much as what you get paid in Taiwan. And so for me, that was kind of just like extra money because it was something I could do a few hours a week and it was easy and whatever. But I wouldn't say, especially after I went to Bangkok because teaching those little kids was harder for me, uh, that was more, that was more like, uh, inspired, like waking me up to the fact that, okay, this is not my, this is not the answer for me long term. So then, you know, it became time for me to think about like, is it time to move home? Is there another job in another industry? How do I do that? What steps did you take to kind of get yourself out of that rut? Uh, I wish I could tell you there were steps, but what I did was take the plunge. Uh, <laughs> my, my partner at the time and I, we moved. We, we both decided Bangkok was not for us. Uh, we missed Taiwan. So we did some traveling. We went back to Taiwan. I was honest with her and I said, look, I can't see myself teaching anymore. I want to try and get a job probably writing since I have a journalism and English background, right? I didn't know anybody in Taipei because I had lived in Shinzu. I didn't know anyone who had a non-teaching job at all, in any foreigner in Taiwan. And I was very lucky because she was happy to teach part-time. She was applying for graduate school. She was a dance performer. So she had that going for her. And she said, okay. She's like, well, you know, why don't you try it for a year? We can live on my teaching salary if, if times get lean, you know? And she's like, you can always go back and get a teaching job, but why don't you try it? So yeah, I just went whole hog into it. She had moved back to Taipei a month or two before me. So there was an apartment waiting when I got here. And, you know, within a few days, I had just kind of started making Excel spreadsheets to look for places where I might find a job or projects, right? So ad agencies, book publishing houses, magazines, newspapers, any company that might have technical writers. And so I just started to compile information on these companies. And if I could find an email address for someone who worked there, and if not, what was their actual address? Then I really just kind of went on an old-fashioned resume blast right so if i could find an email address i would send them a message with an email with my resume and just kind of let them know hey you know i'm in taipei uh i'm looking for writing jobs or projects i'd love to talk to you about anything you have at all right and then if i couldn't find an email address i would actually print out resumes and turn up at their door which in taiwan is not something that people do uh in america it's not such an outrageous thing but in taiwan it's very 
uh, foreign as a practice. And so I would be talking to very surprised front desk people, receptionists who are not expecting to see me, asking to see the HR person who is not expecting to see me, and then you know, presenting myself, hopefully well-dressed, and handing over a resume and telling them what I wanted. I just kind of went about it that way because I didn't know any other way to find a job. There is, there is no English language job board in Taiwan. There are not, uh, it's not as international of a place as Bangkok, so there's not as many foreign professionals that you would just see around, whether it's at the bar or walking up the street or in a cafe. So I just kind of threw myself at it. There wasn't, there wasn't a set of steps. I, I had a little bit of money in the bank and I had a partner who was willing to help me kind of forge ahead and, and kind of like, uh, you know, buoy the financial situation if the money didn't come in. I'd like to just read a quick quote that I found online that I felt really, or that I feel really describes kind of um, what we're trying to get across during our conversation today. The quote goes like this, we all get complacent, especially when it comes to a job. How much does that speak to the ESL industry as a whole? Yeah, I mean, um, as you and I both have mentioned here, there's a, there's a, especially in Taiwan specifically, there's a lot of comfort in this industry and in these roles. Um, the money is good. The schedule can be very flexible. It can be a low-pressure thing. And so a lot of people have found that they enjoy that work enough, let's say. And, you know, before you know it, it is easy to end up being in Asia for two or three years and then not think about it. You know, like the, the running joke when I got here and I still hear it from people is like lots of people land here and they're like, Oh, I'm going to teach for a year and then go home. And it's like 80% <laughs> of those people don't go home after a year. Right. And, uh, but, but I think what you're getting at is when you get beyond that two or three years, I think, mm. you know, when you hit that two or three years is kind of like the first threshold for me. A lot of people, I would say like 18 months to, to year three of teaching, if it's, if it's not for them, they're starting to realize it at that point. Like they're starting to have, you know, kind of uh, the pain points of, of going to work. It's just not for them. It's not fulfilling, you know, whatever it is. They're not cut out to be a teacher. It's just something they're doing, you know, at this stage of their life. But in, in a market in Taiwan, another reason that people can become complacent in their job is because it's very hard to find other jobs if you don't if you're not a native, right? Foreigners get paid a lot more in Taiwan. Uh, it's problematic. Well, it's, it's challenging for some companies to manage the visa requirements to hire foreigners. And so it's not like you can just, it's not like you're back home, wherever back home is. If, if you're doing, let's say a labor job, but you have a college degree, in something, you can start to apply for jobs in your profession. But in Taiwan, it's very hard to find companies that are looking for people doing any number of, of, of professions or, or, or roles. And so it happens in Taiwan that more people end up teaching into that five, six, seven, ten year range. And you know, at that point, it's really hard to make the change. Your life is established. Your lifestyle is established. You're older than you were if you started in your early to mid-20s, which is challenging to change things as we get older. And also, sadly, the resume doesn't show much, right? If you haven't been working on side projects or doing something else, then your resume shows that you've been an ESL teacher, which there's nothing wrong with that work, but using that to try to springboard into another 
industry or career is, is pretty tough. And, you know, staying within the industry, I've only heard tell of this. I didn't have exposure or need to experience it. But, you know, even long-term teachers feel that there's a ceiling about how much money you can make. And then there's maybe an option to go to, to go to management, but management might make less money and be more high stress and things like this. And, you know, then you start to get into things where people feel stressed out about cultural differences, right? There's, there's not a chance for them to, to rise higher in the school. There's not a career development program where they can add skills most of the time. And then, yeah, I mean, in Taiwan, we definitely see it. In Thailand, we saw a lot of it. We just end up meeting a lot of disgruntled people or, or people whose lives have become, you know, uh, jaded and kind of static. And, and they don't, because of the, it's kind of like a, a um, you know, like, a, like a, it's a negative cycle. They're, they're frustrated in their job. But if they've tried to get out and they can't, then they begin to see that as an impossible option. And then it feeds back into other things. If those people are social drinkers, you will often meet them at the bar. And, and you know, that becomes a really frustrating situation. And, and in Taiwan, I think there's something of an industry problem with that. But, you know, there's layers to the conversation about how to try to possibly correct for that or, or, or create more opportunities. I like what you just said. You said, uh, use the words jaded and static um, to describe people that may have overstayed their, you know, their welcome in the industry. From what you've seen, how does this affect their future? Well, I mean, firstly, the thing I mentioned is, is if I've met a lot of people who spend a lot of time in Taiwan, especially, and um, have, have at some point made an effort to try to find other jobs and they're really discouraged, you know, whether they got no response or, or whether they had some kind of negative experience, or maybe, you know, they may have even felt offended if the, uh, you know, if the company or the interviewees kind of expected something more, some expected them to try to make something more of their background or their skill set. Um, but, you know, that, that right there is kind of like you working against yourself, right? You're, you're you don't feel good about your prospects. You don't feel motivated. You start to feel pessimistic. And so, you know, you're, you're losing your own kind of traction that you might've had to get out of the industry. Um, but I think that that also contributes to, to breaking down of that person's passions as well. I feel like I have some friends who've taught for a long time and they have side passions. Some of them are very vibrant. Some of them eventually could become their career. Uh, many of them are like in the arts or or something crafty, right? Um, but you also uh, see these people who kind of just, yeah, they, they kind of feel beat down. And part of it is that they've begun to beat themselves up a little bit. But, you know, the negative there is that those people don't, you know, they no longer have the ambition to see things opportunistically. So it's like, if you might want to get into technical writing, then it would behoove you on the side of your teaching to start writing, I don't know, reviews of the gadgets you buy, right? To show that you have writing, you have a portfolio, you have a skill set, you have an interest in this, you have a proficiency on this topic, so to speak. You know, whether you want to get into coding and you do self-taught stuff or you take courses online, those are the ways that a lot of people are, are kind of like making, bridging this gap. But the longer that people feel like when people get to that point where they really feel mired in, in teaching for such a long time, you just see that uh, tragically a lot of motivation has been sapped. And, and you know how it is, man. I mean, 
your your ambitions and the way you see the world and what's available to you changes profoundly from the time you graduate college until your late 20s until your early 30s and, and you know I'm in my late 30s and so uh, I certainly feel less motivation to launch out into brand new things as often as I would have 10 years ago or 15 years ago what made you want to start all hands and why you felt it was necessary to begin helping people who felt like me, uh, felt like a lot of other foreigners in, in our community here? Actually, it's something I kind of fell into. And I think in the end, looking back on it, my co-founder Danny and I would say that we were pretty naive about it. But the way that it actually started was, um, I guess, about a year and a half ago from now, uh, I was looking for good causes for myself. I have a lot of friends who do altruistic work who who help people, help the environment, help animals. And I felt like I'm, I had reached a point in my career that I should be able to give back. And my day jobs, you know, just happened to not be those kinds of altruistic jobs. And so, you know, I was going to the occasional beach cleanup or, or lantern cleanup. And, and it's great. Those things are good and they feel good. But I was kind of thinking there might be something that I could dedicate myself to at a more, you know, more committed role and, and, and doing something good. Um, but, you know, after, after a pretty good search, um, just between the challenges of scheduling and, and language fluency and having a partner that I live with and, and generally a personal schedule, I didn't quite find anything that matched with me that had a need where I was a fit. And um, so I started to think about maybe I should start something myself. As we've talked about, I do a lot of public speaking for my jobs and and that kind of thing doesn't bother me. And at this time, I was kind of realizing that for the 10 years or more that I've been working outside of teaching in Asia, um, more or less constantly, and by constantly, I guess I would say at least once a month. And these days, I don't go out as much as I used to, but I still get this a lot. Um, I bump into people and, and once you get talking to them and they would learn that I wasn't a student or a teacher, then in good faith, they would just ask, like, how did you do that? How did you get a job? You know, how did you get out of teaching? And at that same time, I realized that in Taiwan, there's still no English language job board and that the best place to look for job openings was Facebook groups for non-teaching jobs. And those were really uh, those places are kind of like a landmine, you know, um, the quality <laughs> of the jobs. I mean, it's well intended, right? But the quality of jobs is very hit and miss. Occasionally there would be a good job, a lot of entry level stuff, some things that were looking to kind of, you know, nickel and dime, so to speak. And, you know, on a Facebook group, anybody can comment whatever they want. So you'd see a lot of negative comments, people unhappy with the salary sidebar right as you and i know that's a taiwan challenge teaching yes. english in taiwan pays so well that entry level professional jobs here you're going to take a pay cut so you have to see that as an opportunity you have to be an you have to be an optimist because you know in maybe a year and a half you can change jobs and jump significantly in your pay once you have that in, under your belt but you know, in these groups, you would get a lot of that kind of commentary. And, and one of the things I realized is a couple of those job groups are huge, like 20, 25,000 people. And so it occurred to me that like, wow, you got all these people, you know, whatever, however many are Taiwanese, however many have left Taiwan, whatever, there's thousands of people in this group. And when they look for a job, they see these listings. And the only dialogue they're seeing about these jobs is people slagging the job posters, right? Complaining about the salary, 
talking badly about the workload for the expectations and all this stuff. And I just thought like, what a terrible, sad thing. And, and then at times I even made the, the, the great mistake of jumping in there, right? And trying to point out things that were like, this is not an offensive thing. Maybe this is the market rate for salaries or whatever. And, you know, then I would be getting attacked by people being, oh, that's your opinion. doesn't matter what your opinion is or whatever. And I was just trying to point out like, hey, for example, as a junior technical writer job, it pays between this and this. That is the going rate. When you see posts from different companies, you're going to see that. And people would kind of still like they were so infuriated by the by the salary that they thought should be higher you know, they would continue to kind of rail on about that. So, so seeing those Facebook groups and the unhealthy situations there and then acknowledging that I was personally meeting a lot of people, I'm like, okay, there's a, there's a gap here. There's a need. And when I, first came, when I first started working outside of teaching in Taiwan, I really defended my work because it was hard. It was hard for me to get a job. I spent a year freelancing. I had my lights turned off, eating instant noodles on the floor for a couple nights. Like, not, not, not like, oh, I got money for a plane ticket home, lights turned off, like no money, you know? And so I'm proud that I made it, but it wasn't easy. And I wouldn't recommend that people do it that way because we're more likely to fail more often than not than the way that I went with it, right? But for the first few years of my work professionally in Taiwan, I defended that. I didn't really want to talk about it because it was so hard to find a job. I didn't know where my next job would be, you know, like my career I would have to look, and I still have to look hard. I would have to have to look as hard for my second job as I did for my first job and as hard for my third job as I did for my second job. But now I got to this place where I'm like, okay, the most valuable thing for me in my career has been networking, especially living abroad. You know, uh, I get to meet a lot of professional people that other people, that let's say teachers, don't. And so getting to know those people, letting them know who I am, letting them know what I do has been extremely valuable. I get calls today from people I've known for eight or 10 years and they'll say, Hey, we've got this copywriting job or, Hey, we are building a website. We need someone to project manage it. Or, you know, someone will call and they'll say, Hey, I'm friends of this person who I worked with years ago. And so, you know, for, I realized that networking is the most valuable thing in my career. And so I thought, okay, what about if we have networking events? Taiwan has very few English language networking events going to, you know, cryptocurrency or hospitality or other industry events in Chinese, very intimidating. Plus, most of the time, they're not really job fairs or job openings. It's something specific about the industry. So I thought, okay, how about we throw some English language networking events and see if people want it? It's hard to know if anybody wants this because it's almost never been done. And I had no idea really if it would work. And they have worked very, very well. I've I've frequented several of them, and the just the the energy in the room when when people who are you know maybe feel a bit desperate and down are are able to get in there and speak to other people who've actually done it. It's very empowering, I think. In in mm -hmm. and I think people that go there really enjoy that, and that's why they keep going. Thank what, you. Yeah, no problem. Well, you're talking to a person. We've spoken about this before. Like one of your events, your event on HR really helped me to 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 branch out and to get the position that I currently have. So I'm yeah. extremely thankful for 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 what you've done. It's um, our pleasure. You are you are our first uh, our first uh, actual person to land a job. So so you're you're a red star on our on our lapel as well. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear that, and then and then I also had the honor of uh, being invited to speak at one of your panels as well to help out yeah. other people. So yeah, it was a great exactly. experience. Great experience. What are your What are your goals for All Hands for maybe the next year, 
uh, maybe I should say, what are your goals for in the short term? Sure. Maybe- well, it's grown terrifically. Uh, sorry to jump in there. Um, we, we have an event about once a month, our networking events, you know, where we're bringing in about a hundred people a month. There's food, there's beer, there's different topics. We're covering everything from, we're trying to cover as many professional topics as people seem as the community seems to need you know at this point we're fortunate to have grown significantly and so we're trying to take feedback from the thousands now members of our community and um, in addition to our monthly networking events we have hosted one job fair which was a great success by our standards we had a number of international and local companies we had the government taipei city government as well as national government come and be a part of it and speak. Um, We formed a great partnership with the American Institute of Taiwan, and um, we're very fortunate for those kinds of uh, relationships. So now we'll be doing two job fairs a year. There's quite a lot going on, so pardon me for making this sound like a list, but in addition to the (laughs) job fairs, uh, we're building a job board website, um, which will be in multiple languages, but English first. We're also writing a white paper at the moment. Um, so we're taking that, we're, we're conducting a huge survey to help inform the Taiwan government about the foreign living and working experience in Taiwan. We found that there's a gap, a significant gap in, in understanding these hundreds of thousands of people who are here in good faith and want to stay and work in Taiwan. So we are going to publish a white paper in partnership with American Institute in Taiwan. Uh, that's pretty exciting. And uh, at the moment, we are registering all hands as both a nonprofit association and a for-profit company. That's great news. I mean, other than the white paper, I didn't know that you had your hands, or you and Danny had your hands in so many other things. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot going on. If somebody wants to contact you or get more information on all hands and what you're doing, future events, where can they go? Who can they talk to? Um, so, of course, we can be found on Facebook. Um, All Hands Taiwan is the name of the organization. You know, you'll see lots of maintenance posting there as well as events and, and things that we do uh, and updates on things like the white paper and the job board. And you can also visit allhandstaiwan.com. Um, we do have a blog there which has a lot of useful information. We have a resources page where we're sharing other kinds of organizations who are helping entrepreneurs, job seekers, students interns, etc. And we do regular events, blog posts as well. So we're highlighting not only our own English events, but all the English events we can find in Taiwan that might be relevant for networking. And for those of you who do live in Taiwan currently, you'll notice on our homepage that we are conducting the survey that I mentioned about the white paper. So if you have a few minutes and you wouldn't mind filling out the survey, we are trying to capture thousands of responses. So we need every one of you who has a few minutes to spare. Thanks for the time, Tim. I really appreciate it. And thank you uh, for letting me share the information about where people can find all hands. Yeah, of course. Uh, as, as, you, as you already know, I'm an advocate for all hands. So not an issue at all. We appreciate it greatly. All right, well, let's, um, let's cut it there. Uh, again, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Take care, John. Thanks, Tim. Enjoyed this episode of the Teaching While Learning podcast? Head on over to your favorite podcast service to subscribe, leave a review, or offer up some constructive feedback on what you just heard. We also have a growing community on LinkedIn, so if you'd like to connect with other like-minded ESL professionals, search for Teaching While Learning and join us. I appreciate you clicking on this episode, and I hope to have you back.